0: We welcome you to day two of Disney Dragon Week. I'm Jeff Kober and this is a Disney at Play, Disney at Work podcast. And we're so glad that you could join us here. We're going to uh, showcase some of the great dragons that can be found in Disney parks while making some uh, really good connections back to your own life, work, experience at home. On day two, we thought we would cover the very first Disney park dragon. So let's go down, down, down to the happiest place on earth, Disneyland. Now, yesterday we covered uh, the, probably the most uh, familiar Disney dragon of them all, Maleficent dragon. And we talked about that dragon as it, is it is experienced at Disneyland Paris? You're going to want to refer to our show notes page because there's a lot of images um, for each of these podcasts, and so you're going to want to kind of see this as as it plays out. Uh, a big part of this is is an expression that Walt Disney gave on uh, uh, at the beginning when he created Disneyland. He said, "Disneyland will never be completed." as long as there is imagination left in the world. Well, we'll see how this plays out in today's podcast as we explore this very unique uh, dragon. You would have thought that there might have been dragons at Disneyland from day one. I mean, you know, Disney, dragons, there's a castle. In fact, it was Sleeping Beauty Castle, although the castle itself And the park opened in 1955. The movie actually didn't happen until a few years later. So uh, that dragon had not even, Maleficent dragon had not even materialized. And there wasn't a dragon anywhere else. Um, Disney's first animated dragon was the Reluctant Dragon, um, which was kind of a short that Disney had done in tandem with a movie movie that showcased his new film studio, his new um, production studio in Burbank. Um, But there wasn't really a dragon that showed up at Disneyland until 1959. And even then, it wasn't some flying medieval foe um, with breathing fire, Uh, nope. Instead, it was a sea serpent. Yes, a sea serpent, or sea dragon, is a type of dragon. It's born out of mythologies from Greek, Mesopotamian, uh, Hebrew, and Norse roots. And this is one mythological sea serpent that showed up at Disneyland. It was the finale moment to the infamous Disneyland submarine voyage. Now, let's back up because really, while this uh, was a playful uh, sea serpent, there were actually two other dragons that emerged that were a lot bigger threats. According to Sam Genaway's The Disneyland story, when Disneyland's first head of operation, CB Wood, was terminated by Walt and Roy Disney, he went out and started a number of businesses to include Freedomland and Lake Havasu. He also partnered with CBS and Santa Anita Park to build a lavish 28 acre piece of competition called Pacific Ocean Park. In the show notes, you can see a map of this. The attraction, located in Santa Monica, California, opened on July 23rd, 1958. Now, keep in mind that date, July 23rd, 1958. There would be, in this park, a Union 76 Ocean Highway where you could drive miniature gasoline-powered automobiles. There would be a Virtual flight to Mars. There would be a house of tomorrow, a safari dark ride passing by animals, a carousel, and a train. It also had a USS Nautilus replica and an attraction called Deepest Deep, a simulated voyage via submarine. Only the whole thing took place above water. Oh, and they also had a sea serpent roller coaster. Hmm. The park opened on July 23rd, 1958. According to a book dedicated to the seaside attraction, it had 20,000 people who showed up on the first day. On day two, it had 37,262, which interestingly outperformed Disneyland's attendance on that day. The dragons of competition had emerged. Getaway notes that, curiously, on the same day Pacific Ocean Park opened, Walt Disney sent out a memo to his staff outlining the roles and responsibilities for what would be the biggest expansion to the park since opening in 1955. Disneyland had added attractions in the previous years, like like the gondola system and uh, the Tom Sawyer Island but this would be something much bigger. Eventually, this expansion would include a Matterhorn bobsled ride, an Alweg monorail system, and a submarine experience. One that would go under the water, or at least kind of look like it. Apparently, Walt knew that he had to deal with the competitive dragons knocking on his door. Opened in 1959, the submarine voyage was truly one of the most creative endeavors of Waltz Park. There were 530 stationary figures, 126 animated figures, and 15,000 underwater plants in a 9 million gallon lagoon. The water was so clear that the park claimed that it was pure enough to drink. The eight submarines, named after U.S. Navy nuclear-powered submarines were referred to Walt as the world's largest peacetime submarine fleet. He even had it formally commissioned by the U.S. Navy. Half of the show was out in the open lagoon and guests could see the submarines sailing by. It was a great uh, thing that made guests excited about getting in line to ride the submarines. But the other half of the submarine voyage was meticulously engineered in a hidden show building behind waterfalls that that housed on top of it utopia cars, monorails, and eventually a people mover. Here guests would see sunken ships, the ruins of Atlantis, and go under a polar ice cap. And all of that would be capped off by the experience of meeting a 60-foot sea serpent. In a National Geographic article of 1963 entitled The Magical Worlds of Walt Disney, writer Robert DeRus notes, quote, we finally passed by what may be the largest sea serpent in the world, certainly the largest cross-eyed sea serpent, end of quote. Tony Baxter, an imagineer at Disney, first rode the submarine as a 12-year-old. In his memoirs, Tony Baxter, first ge- of the second generation of Walt Disney engineers, Tony notes that quote, "It rocked me like nothing else at Disneyland. Here I was sitting in a submarine underwater. It was something I could only do, and in fact, something that most families could only do at Disneyland." End of quote. Later, he became a cast member and actually was a sailor on board the submarines. And then in time, he became an Imagineer working on the original 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea attraction at Walt Disney World. Have you been on any of these attractions, either the submarine voyage at Disneyland or the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? It was uh, an amazing attraction when you got there, especially the submarines at at uh, Walt Disney World, it just, there's the Nautilus and it's going through this lagoon. Unfortunately, it wasn't quite the attraction you thought it'd be when you got, uh, after you stood in line a long time to get on board these submarines. In the 90s, operations at Disney simply didn't want to deal with the overhead and the cost of keeping up the submarines. They saw little value in an attraction where you sat around looking at stuff in the water that looked like it was attached to fishing wire. No one wanted to talk about how to make it better. And that became a cyclical monster, where failure to keep the attraction vibrant and alive caused it to fall out of popularity, allowing operations to reinforce their message, hey, it's not worth saving. They didn't want to hassle with it. They didn't want to invest in it. They didn't want to see how they could take it to the next level. Eventually, the attraction closed and even went through a decommissioning ceremony by the Navy, much to the lividness of Tony Baxter. When Paul Pressler, who was the head of Disneyland at that time, spoke about, oh, look how cool the pomp and circumstance is of having these subs decommissioned, Tony looked him straight in the eye and spoke, Boldly said, this is the worst day of my life. He was angry that the attraction had simply been neglected and that nothing was going to come in its wake. Those were dark days when the future of the submarine lagoon seemed very uncertain. Tony kept pitching ideas, especially when films like Atlantis came out. But films like this didn't do very well with audiences, and it was really hard to get the interest, much less the money to do it. When Pixar's Finding Nemo became a box office hit, Imagineer Tony Baxter realized it was a great story for redoing the mothballed submarines. The challenge for Tony was how to convince management that they not only could bring the story of Finding Nemo to the subs, but to make an experience that was as brilliant as was done on the Pixar film. It just wasn't enough to plug some plastic fish in that looked like Nemo and Friends on a bunch of wires. Along with Bruce Gordon and Chris Teets, they produced a mock-up that allowed for the beautiful animation of the film to be nestled in the middle of the liquid expanse of the physical attraction. The experience was enormously expensive to rebuild, but the effect was very cool. And the project ended up being the first major attraction given a green light by the new CEO, Bob Iger. You know Bob Iger. He'd go on to build even more expensive things like Shanghai Disney and Galaxy's Edge. Well, the result was, the Finding Nemo Submarine, which was dedicated on June 11, 2007. Again, the Navy came out prior to opening and recommissioned Disneyland's eight submarines. While the old sea serpent has moved on, Tony's courage to face the dragons of resistance and apathy, to be persistent in his vision of what the submarines could be, is an example to all. Now, who knows what the future of this beloved attraction is. It's still a very expensive attraction to keep up to date. Operationally, it requires a lot of labor. Um, People stand in a long line because you can only get so many subs moving through at any given point, and you can only seat so many people within a sub. Who could tell where these beloved submarines will set sail next? But this much is for sure. Disneyland can't sit on its laurels. It must not allow the submarines to fall into the liquid space of mediocrity. With new and compelling competition out there in the world, it must fight the dragons of competition, always offering new and compelling experiences. The only thing that will sink the subs will be apathy. Now, here's some souvenirs for you. Here's some takeaways from our focus on this Disneyland attraction. Ask yourself, who is your competition? How do you surpass those who are trying to do what you do best? How do you fight apathy of resting on your laurels? What systems do you have in place to continually improve your products and services to make them better than ever before? How do you deal with people who just sit on their accomplishments and don't look at what could be in the future? How do you persist in your vision of the possibilities of what could be? That's why Walt said, Disneyland will never be completed as long as there is imagination left in the world. Tomorrow, we'll explore another Disney park and new dragons, one that we particularly love. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can be notified. And if you like our podcast, please give us a good review. We are a young podcast compared to others who have done scores, if not hundreds of podcasts. But we bring great ideas and new insight and inspiration that you can take back into your own world, into your own business, to your own life experience. Meanwhile, if you want to know more about this kind of topic, please visit my book, Disney Leadership in You. It's available on Amazon. It shares these kinds of stories from Disney that help us fight the dragons we face daily. And seek us out at disneyatwork.com or at performancejourneys.com, which hosts these two websites. We could provide programs like this for you, where we could take you through the parks and help you see the business behind the magic where you can see best in industry ideas that you can take back and apply to your organization, whether it's healthcare, government, whatever it may be, whatever kind of business you have, we can help you make those best practices ideas around customer service, employee engagement, leadership come alive to you and your organization. So seek us out. Meanwhile, join us as we seek to look at more Disney Dragons during this uh, Disney Dragon Week. Take care and remember, always follow the compass of your heart.